Chapter Two, Part Two of the Star of Gettysburg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Star of Gettysburg by Joseph A. Altscheller. Chapter Two, A Horse with Sherburne. Harry was glad that General Jackson had detailed him for this task. He missed his comrades of the staff, but Sherburne was a host in himself and he was greatly attached to him. He rode a good horse, and there was pleasure in galloping with these men over the rolling country and breathing the crisp and vital air of autumn. They soon left the forest and rode along a narrow road between fields. Their spirits rose continually. It was a singular fact that the Army of Northern Virginia was not depressed by Antietam. It had been a bitter disappointment to the Southern people, who expected to see Lee take Baltimore and Philadelphia, but the army itself was full of pride over its achievement in beating off numbers so much superior. It was for these reasons that Sherburne and those who rode with him felt pride and elation. They had seen the ranks of the army fill up again. Lee had retreated across the Potomac after Antietam with less than forty thousand men. Now he had more than seventy thousand, and Sherburne and Harry felt certain that instead of waiting to be attacked by McClellan, he himself would go forth to attack. Harry had seldom seen a day more beautiful. That long, hot, dry summer had been followed by a fine autumn, the most glorious of all seasons in North America, when the air has a snap and life enough in it to make the old young again. He was familiar now with the rolling country into which they rode after leaving the forest. Off in one direction lay the fields on which they had fought the first and second Manassas, and off in another, behind the loom of the Blue Mountains, he had ridden with Stonewall Jackson on that marvellous campaign which seemed to Harry without an equal. But the land about them was deserted now. There were no harvests in the fields. No smoke rose from the deserted farmhouses. This soil had been trodden over and over again by great armies, and it would be a long time before it called again for the plough. The stone fences stood, as solid as ever, but those of wood had been used for fuel by the soldiers. They watered their horses at a clear creek, and then Sherburne and Harry, from the summit of a low hill, scanned the country with their glasses. There was the rolling country, brown now with autumn, and the clear, cool streams flowed through almost every valley. But so far as man was concerned, the scene was one of desolation. "'I should think that McClellan would have mounted scouts, some distance this size of the Potomac,' said Sherburne. Certainly, if he were making the crossing, as our reports say, he would send them ahead. "'We are sure to strike them before we reach the river,' said Harry. "'I think with you that we'll see them. But it's our business to avoid them. We're sent for it to see, and not fight. But if General Stuart could ride away up into Pennsylvania, make a complete circuit around the Union Army, and come back without loss, then we ought to be successful with our own task, which is an easier one.' Harry smiled. I never knew you to fail, Captain. I consider your task is done already. Thanks, Harry. You're a noble optimist. If we fail, it will not be for lack of trying. Forward, my lads, and we'll reach the Potomac sometime tonight. They rode on through the same silence and desolation. They had no doubt that eyes watched them from groves and fence corners, keeping cautiously out of the way, because it was sometimes difficult now to tell Federals from Confederates. But it did not matter to Sherburne. He kept a straight course for the Potomac, at least half of his men knowing thoroughly every foot of the way. 
"'What time can we reach the river, and the place where they say McClellan is going to cross?' asked Harry. "'By midnight, anyway,' replied Sherburne. "'Of course, we'll have to slow down as we draw near, or we may run square into an ambush. Do you see that grove about two miles ahead? We'll go into that first, rest our horses, and take some food.' It was a fine oak grove, covering about an acre, with no undergrowth and a fair amount of grass, still green under the shade, on which the horses could graze. The trunks of the trees also were close enough together to hide them from any one who was not very near. Here the men ate cold food from their haversacks, and let their horses nibble the grass for half an hour. They emerged refreshed, and resumed their course toward the Potomac. In the very height of the afternoon blaze they saw a horseman on the crest of a hill, watching them intently through glasses. Sherburne instantly raised his own glasses to his eyes. "'A Yankee scout,' he said. "'He sees us, and knows us for what we are, but he doesn't know what we're about.' "'But he's trying to guess,' said Harry, who was also using glasses. "'I can't see his face well enough to tell, but I know that in his place I'd be guessing.' "'As we don't want him hanging on to our heels and watching us, I think we'd better charge him.' "'Have the whole troop turn aside and chase him?' "'No. Harry, you and I and eight men will do it. Marlow, take the rest of the company straight along the road at an easy gait. But keep well behind the hedge that you see ahead.' Marlow was his second in command, and taking the lead he continued with the troop. Marlow rode behind one of the hedges, where they were hidden from the lone horsemen on the hill. Sherburne and Harry and the eight men followed. While they were yet hidden, Sherburne and his chosen band suddenly detached themselves from the others at a break in the hedge, and galloped toward the horseman, who was still standing on the hill, gazing intently towards the point where he had last seen the troop riding. Sherburne, Harry, and the privates rode at a gallop across the field, straight for the Union Sentinel. He did not see them until they had covered nearly half the distance, and then, with an aggravating slowness, he turned and rode over the opposite side of the hill. Harry had been watching him intently, and when he had come much nearer the figure seemed familiar to him. At first he could not recall it to mind, but a moment or two later he turned excitedly to Sherburne. "'I know that man, although I have never seen him before in a uniform,' he said. "'I met him when President Davis was inaugurated at Montgomery, and I saw him again at Washington. His name is Shepard.' the most skillful and daring of all the Union spies. "'I've heard you speak of that fellow before,' said Sherburne. "'And since we've put him to flight, I think we'd better stop. Ten to one, if we follow him over the hill, he'll lead us into an ambush.' "'I think you're right, Captain. And it's likely, too, that he'll come back soon with a heavy cavalry detachment. I've no doubt that thousands of Union horsemen are on this side of the river.' Sherburne was impressed by Harry's words, and the little detachment— Returning at a gallop, joined the main troop, which was now close to a considerable stretch of forest. "'Ah, there they are!' exclaimed Harry, looking back at the hill on which he had seen the lone horseman. A powerful body of cavalry showed for a moment against the sun, which was burning low and red in the west. The background was so intense and vivid that the horsemen did not form a mass, but every figure stood detached, a black outline against the sky." Harry judged that they were at least a thousand in number. "'Too strong a force for us to meet,' said Sherburne. "'They must outnumber us five to one, and since they've had practice the northern cavalry has improved a lot. It must be a part of the big force that made the scout toward our lines. Good thing the forest is just ahead.' "'A good thing, too, that night is not far off.' "'Right, my boy. 
We need em both, the forest and the dark. The Union cavalry is going to pursue us, and I don't mean to turn back. General Jackson sent us to find out about McClellan's crossing, and we've got to do it. I wouldn't dare go back to old Jack without the information we're sent to get. Nor I. Hurry up the men, Marlowe. We've got to lose the Union cavalry in the forest somehow. The men urged their horses forward at a gallop and quickly reached the trees. But when Harry looked back he saw the thousand in blue about a mile away, coming at a pace equal to their own. He felt much apprehension. The road through the forest led straight before them, but the trail of two hundred horses could not be hidden even by night. They could turn into the forest and elude their pursuers, but, as Sherburne said, that meant abandoning their errand, and no one in all the group thought of such a thing. Sherburne increased the pace a little now, while he tried to think of some way out. Harry rode by his side in silence, and he, too, was seeking a solution. Through the trees, now nearly leafless, they saw the blue line still coming, and the perplexities of the brave young captain grew fast. But the night was coming down, and suddenly the long, lean figure of a man on the long, lean figure of a horse shot from the trees on their right and drew up by the side of Sherburne and Harry. "'Lankford, sir. Jim Lankford is my name,' he said to Sherburne, touching one finger to his forehead in a queer kind of salute. Harry saw that the man had a thin, clean-shaven face with a strong nose and chin. "'I allow you're running away from Yankees,' said Langford to Sherburne. Sherburne flushed, but no anger showed in the voice as he replied, "'You're right, but we run for two reasons. They're five to our one, and we have business elsewhere that mustn't be interrupted by fighting.' First reason is enough. A man who fights five to one is five times a fool. I'm a good Johnny Reb myself, though I keep off the fightin' lines. I live back there in a house among the trees, just off the road. You'd have seen it when you passed by, if you hadn't been in such a hurry. Just settin' down to take a smoke when Mandy, my wife, tells me she hears the feet of many horses thunderin' on the road. In a moment I hear em too. Run to the front porch, and see Confederate cavalry comin' at a gallop, followed by a big Yankee force. Mandy and me didn't like the sight, and we agreed that I'd take a hand. Now I'm takin' it. How do you intend to help us? I'm getting to that. I saddled my big horse quick as lightnin', and taken a runnin' jump out of the woods, landed beside you. Now listen, Captain. I reckon you're on some sort of scoutin' trip, and want to go on toward the river. You reckon right. About a mile further on we dip into a little valley. A creek, wide but shallow, and with a bed all rocks, takes up most of the width of that valley. It goes nearly to north, and at last reaches the Potomac. A half-mile from the crossing ahead it runs through steep, high banks down to its edges, but the creek bottom is smooth enough for the horses. I allow I make myself plain enough, don't I, Mr. Captain? You do, Mr. Lankfort, and you're an angel in homespun. Without you we could never do what we want to do. Lead the way to that blessed creek. We don't want any of the Yankee vanguard to see us when we turn and follow its stream. We can make it easy. They might guess that we're riding in the water to hide our tracks, but the bottom is so rocky that they won't know whether we've gone up or down the stream, and if they guessed the right way, and followed it, they'd be likely to turn back at the cliffs anyhow. They urged their horses now to the uttermost, and Harry soon saw the waters of the creek shining through the darkness. Everything was falling out as Langford had said. The pursuit was unseen and unheard behind them, but they knew it was there. "'Slow now, boys,' said Sherburne as they rode into the stream. "'We don't want to make too much noise splashing the water. "'Are there many boulders in here, Mr. Langford?' 
Not enough to hurt. Then you lead the way. The men can come four abreast. The water was about a foot deep, and despite their care, eight hundred hooves made a considerable splashing. But the creek soon turned around a hill and led on through dense forest. Sherburne and Harry were satisfied that no Union horsemen had either seen or heard them, and they followed Langford with absolute confidence. Now and then the hoofs of a stumbling horse would grind on the stones, but there was no other noise save the steady marching of two hundred men through water. The things that Langford had asserted continued to come true. The creek presently flowed between banks fifty feet high, rocky and steep as a wall, but the stone bed of the creek was almost as smooth as a floor, and they stopped here a while to rest and let their horses drink. The enclosing walls were not more than fifty or sixty feet across at the top, and it was very dark in the gorge. Harry saw overhead a slice of dusky sky, lit by only a few stars, but it was pitchy black where he sat on his horse and listened to his contented gurglings as he drank. He could merely make out the outlines of his comrades, but he knew that Sherburne was on one side of him and Lankford on the other. He could not hear the slightest sound of pursuit, and he was convinced that the Union cavalry had lost their trail. So was Sherburne. "'I owe you a big debt, Mr. Lankford,' said the captain. "'I've tried to serve my side,' said Lankford, "'though, as I told you, I'm not going on the firing line. It's not worth while for all of us to get killed. Later on this country will need some people who are not dead.' "'You're right about that, Mr. Lankford,' said Sherburne, with a little laugh. "'And you, for one, although you haven't gone on the firing lines, have earned the right to live. You've done us a great service, sir.' "'I know I have,' said Langford, with calm egotism. "'But it was necessary for me to do it. "'I've got an inquirer in mind, I have, and also a calculating one. "'When I saw your little troop coming, and then that big troop of Yankees coming on behind, "'I knowed that you needed help. "'I knowed that this creek run down a gorge, "'and that I could lead you into that gorge and escape pursuit. "'I figured, too, that you were on your way to see about McClellan crossing the Potomac.' and I figured next that you meant to keep straight on, no matter what happened. So I'm going to lead you out of the gorge, and some miles further ahead you'll come to the Potomac, where I guess you can use your own eyes and see all you want to see. The horses are all right now, and I think we'd better be moving, Mr. Lankford. They started, but did not go faster than a walk while they were in the gorge. Harry's eyes had grown somewhat used to the darkness, and he could make out the rocky walls, crested with trees, the higher branches of which seemed almost to meet overhead the chasm. It was a weird passage, but time and place did not oppress Harry. He felt instead a certain surge of the spirits. They had thrown off the pursuit, there could be no doubt of it, and the first step in their mission was accomplished. They were now in the midst of action, action thrilling and of the highest importance, and his soul rose to the issue. He had no doubt that some great movement, possibly like that of the second Manassas, hung upon their mission, and Lee and Jackson might be together at that very moment, planning the mighty enterprise which would be shaped according to their news. They emerged from the gorge and rode up a low, sloping bank, which gave back but little sound to the tread of the horses, and here Langford said that he would leave them. Sherburne reached over his gauntleted hand and gave him a powerful grasp. "'We won't forget this service, Mr. Langford,' he said. "'I ain't going to let you forget it. Keep straight ahead and you'll strike a cross-country road in about a quarter of a mile. It leads you to the Potomac, and I reckon from now on you'll have to take care of yourselves. Langford melted away in the darkness as he rode back up the gorge, 
and the troop went on at a good pace across a country, half field, half forest. They came to a road which was smooth and hard, and increased their speed. They soon reached a region which several of their horsemen knew, and, as the night lightened a little, they rode fast toward the Potomac. Harry looked at his watch and saw that it was not much past midnight. They would have ample opportunity for observation before morning. A half hour later they discerned dim lights ahead and knew that the Potomac could not be far away. They drew to one side in a bit of forest, and Sherburne again detached himself, Harry, and eight others from the troop, which he left as before under the command of Marlow. "'Wait here in the wood for us,' he said to his second-in-command. "'We shall be back by dawn. Of course, if any force of the enemy threatens you, you'll have to do what seems best, and we'll ride back to General Jackson alone.' The ten went on a bit farther, using extreme care lest they run into a northern picket. Fortunately, the fringe of wood, in which they found shelter, continued to a point near the river, and as they went forward quietly they saw many lights. They heard also great tumult, a mix of many noises, the rumbling of cannon and wagon-wheels, the crackling of drivers' whips by the hundreds and hundreds, the sounds of drivers swearing many oaths, but swearing together and in an unbroken stream. End of part one of chapter two.